0: Lord, we pray that you would bless your word to our hearts, that you would speak to us, and that you would broaden our ability to comprehend God. Your Holy Spirit wants to do a work in each one of us, and I pray that, uh, that he would speak and that we would hear, that he would speak and that we would obey, that he would speak and we would surrender. So Lord, we give this time to you. We pray that you would be worshipped and honored by how we treat your word and the attention that we give to it. So have your way with us tonight, and it's in your name we pray, amen. So the book of Titus is uh, just a, a phenomenal book of the New Testament. And with it, we wrap up what's called the pastoral epistle. So, uh, you know, we, we break up the letters of Paul just in the New Testament. They're not sorted chronologically. There's a chunk of letters he was written to the churches, and they are sorted by length. And then there's a letter, uh, a cluster of letters that he wrote to people. And those are also sorted by length. And so... Uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus are what's known as the pastoral epistles. Paul is writing these letters to young pastors to encourage them in their calling. And Philemon, which we'll cover next week, uh, is written to a specific man within a specific church for a, kind of a specific purpose. But there's still a ton of application there. But Titus is a very unique book, and it's, uh, it's, it's great that we have the books of Timothy and the books of Titus because they're written to two very different personalities of minister. And we said, you know, we, it, we said, we say very routinely that everyone is in full-time ministry. But sometimes, if you're not careful, you can look at someone that the Lord is using and you can say, well, yeah, but, you know, that's, I'm not really that personality or that, that type or whatever, and so I don't know if the Lord's going to use me in that way. And the reality is the Lord may not use you in that way. The Lord wants to use you in the way that he created you to be used. He designed you for a purpose. And so if you spend your life trying to copy someone else's ministry, you're setting yourself up for frustration. But we get a beautiful contrast in the book of Titus with the books of First and Second Timothy, and that is two separate pastors, two disciples and interns and full-time ministers who had come up through the ministry of Paul who have very different personalities. Okay? And, and we can glean this from reading their books, the, reading the letters and what Paul felt was necessary to encourage them in. So when Paul writes to Timothy... He says, hey, you know, be strong. Don't be afraid. Usually we say don't be afraid to people who are afraid. Hey, I know you've got bad stomach problems all the time, so we can deal with that too, right? Hey, you know, just there's a gift that God gave you. Don't be scared to use it. You just just grow in your gift. Use your gift. You know, walk in all these things. Paul gets to Titus, and it's just like a series of bullet points. One, two, three, four, which is, incidentally, for anybody who cares, that's a beautiful way to communicate if you ever like, like I understand, there's a time and place for verbal processing, but if you want to get something done, or at least let me put it went this way, if you want me to get something done for you and you want to ask me for my help, if you can come up to me and say, Nate, A, we've got a problem. B, here's the solution. C, can you do it? I can do that. But if you're processing what the problem is in real time, I will try and be as gracious as I can. But I, you've lost me. Okay. Once you're processing it in real time, it's just it's not there. I'm, I'm like. It's glazed over, and I'm waiting for the end of, this, of your processing, hoping that it doesn't end with a question, uh, because I'm probably not paying that close of attention. And if we get to the end, I'll be like, okay, so what you need is A, B, C. Okay, so Paul's going to write a letter to Titus, and it's very bullet-pointed. And Titus is just a tough guy in a tough ministry. And he is just, you know, I read a news article one time that described a, a lawyer at a courtroom as a bulldog in a suit. And that's really what Titus is, okay? And and we can infer that pretty safely from the context of Scripture, because we know a couple things about Titus. One, Titus is a, a Gentile. He is not Timothy was half Jew, half Gentile, his his mother was Jewish, his father was Greek. Titus is a full Gentile. And Titus is the man who Paul takes with him when Paul goes back to Jerusalem to meet with the church there and to say, Okay, I've been preaching a gospel of salvation by grace. I have been preaching that you do not need to be circumcised and you do not need to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And I want to meet with you guys. Yeah, I want to meet with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to say, is this correct? And, and we need to know, are, are, are we on the same page or are we on two separate pages? Titus is the guy Paul takes with him, which is a very uh, gutsy move for a guy like Titus to take. Because what that means is that Titus has now become the face of Christianity for all non-Jewish believers. And these Jewish men are going to basically hear Titus' story and Paul sharing Titus's testimony. And I'm sure Titus kind of explaining his testimony. And as part of that, they're then going to make a judgment call about do all Christian men need to get circumcised in order to go to heaven. And Titus is in there, in that sort of inquiry as an uncircumcised man. Knowing if they give me a, a no vote, I'm about ready to go get some plastic surgery. And so that takes a certain level of boldness to say, yeah, I will walk, I'll I'll walk the however many hundreds of miles to go with you to put myself at risk of very real physical discomfort, but also spiritual discomfort. And, you know, you could seriously damage my relationship with Paul, Um, but I'm going to do it for the sake of the gospel. We also know in the city of Corinth, Paul talks about through his letters there that he had been there, Paulus had been there, Timothy had been there, Silas had been there. And the church of Corinth was just a very difficult church. And what happens is Paul sends Titus. And the next thing you know, uh, we've got the letter of 2 Corinthians, where Paul's saying, hey, super glad to hear that you guys are in repentance. It's great that you're dealing with sin. And now we can kind of move forward. Because when Titus showed up, he was not there to play games. Titus was there to make sure that you understood that God had called you to something. And this was not God's church for you to mess around with. And so Titus is just a tough guy in a tough ministry. And as Paul writes this letter to him, he says, okay, I'm going to give you some bullet points. One, preach the gospel. Two, appoint elders. Three, exhort the church. Four, don't forget the gospel. Grace be with you. So it's just like a kind of, you know, a boom, 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 boom letter. And it's a rapid fire. Paul is going to just go for it. So he opens up. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect... And the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Paul's introduction. Paul is writing this according to faith, knowledge of the truth, and hope. And those are things which God has made manifest, he says, through preaching. The faith, hope. And knowledge of the truth I think that God wants to make manifest to his people through preaching through teaching the role of declaring the Word of God is is a very important role and that's not exclusively a role that someone in a in a quote-unquote pastoral position gets that's a role that every one of us carries we're all full-time ministers we all are given opportunities at various times and various places to preach the gospel because we carry within us the same thing that Paul carried the hope of eternal life, the knowledge of the truth and the faith that we have through Jesus Christ. Verse 4 to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So again, like all of Paul's letters, grace and peace, and they're always in that order because you always receive peace as a result of grace. It never goes the other way around. And in all of his letters to pastors, he includes mercy because being uh, a person in a pastoral role, we're told, comes under a stricter judgment because we're all accountable for what we do with what we're given, right? And so if I stand up here and say something horribly blasphemous, you're responsible to not take it to heart. But I'm more responsible for having shared it in the first place and having put you in a position where you now have to make the judgment call about was that true or false. So it's not an excuse for someone who's not in a position of leadership to say, oh, no, no, it's, it's his fault, it's her fault, Whatever. But it is a requirement to understand you, you're going to be under a, a higher level of accountability. And so any, every pastor needs mercy, needs to not get the things they deserve because every pastor says stupid things. You give, you give somebody uh, an hour a week, every week, for just a, a, you know an indefinite period of time, they will say something stupid. You can just kind of wait, you know, different ones are going to say different stupid things at different times, but it comes. It's just kind of, it's part of the territory. A pastor is going to say something horribly stupid. And lest you worry, don't worry, somebody will fill him in on that fact, right? It's always, you very rarely get away with it long term, but pastors need mercy. And Paul goes on in verse five. He says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So Paul has started a ministry on the island of Crete, and he says, as he's, he's wrapping up, he's leaving, he says, I can't leave this. This, is, this, is, this. These people are not in a position where they are ready to be left. I need to leave a man in charge. Titus, you look available. Here you go. You wanted a job, Titus? Here you go. Your job is to set in order the things that are lacking. If something's not right, fix it. And appoint elders in every city. You need to raise up men of authority who can lead the church. And now he's going to give a list of criteria, and you could say these are qualifications for the role of an elder, and that's true. These are also qualities that should be coming out in the life of a believer. It shouldn't be, you shouldn't read this and think of, oh, this is a checklist I've got to get done if I ever want to be used by God. You should look at this and, and say, okay, these are things God wants to grow in my heart as I'm walking with him. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So, uh, well, verse 7, For a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. It's a very similar list. To what Paul told Timothy, hey, if you're appointing elders or bishops or pastors in a church, these are qualities that you should be looking for in a man that God is raising up. So he says, it's important, he says, they need to be blameless. And that doesn't mean perfect because no human being is perfect. But they need to be blameless as a steward of God. They need to be above a scandal, right? You shouldn't be able to point to a pastor's life and say, that guy has got a totally different vibe on Monday morning or friday night than he does on sunday morning there should not be a disconnect that's uh, you know where everybody says this is this is a problem there's always a disconnect because we're always sinners but that gap between what we teach in the word of god and what we live in our personal life should always be closing it should always be narrowing because the lord should always be sanctifying us but a person in a role of an elder should be a steward of god blameless as a steward of god they need to see themselves as managers as, okay, I've been given something and my job is to be faithful with it until the Lord comes to claim it. A pastor should never refer to a church as my church or my people. Because they're not his people. It's not his church. It's God's church and it's God's people. And he's been given a, a responsibility to help shepherd them. And to help make sure that they are discipled and that they're healthy in their spiritual walks. But they're not his they're the Lord's. And so he's a steward. And with that, there's these ideas. He says, you know, the husband of one wife having faithful children, they're children, not adults. You know, every every person is responsible for their own walk with the Lord. But if a pastor has just a house full of kids who are all losing their minds, it's okay to say, well, wait, wait a second. Is there a, is there a problem here? Is there a disconnect? And in part because you can fake just about anything for a couple hours on Sunday and a couple hours on Wednesday. But your kids, your spouse, they know you. They know the real you. You can't fake it long-term with them. And so the way they reflect your leadership will reflect the way you're able to lead a church or lead a ministry or lead whatever the Lord puts you in a position of authority over. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Again, if it's the Lord's church and they are the Lord's people, then no pastor, no elder is ever in a position to think of his role as what can I get out of this? How can I make money off of these people? Because you're just a manager. A manager's job is not to get rich. A manager's job really is to make sure that the owner gets rich, right? A manager's job is to do a good, is to be faithful to help the employees do their work well so that the owner gets a good return. And so a manager which is the role of anybody in a position of leadership in a church needs to see it as this is not my this is not my little you know financial game this is the lord's money these are the lord's people just holy self-controlled these are fruits of the spirit that should be working out in their life holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught a person in a position of leadership in a church needs to be holding on to the word of god to exhort and convict those who contradict. Verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. He's saying especially those who want to drag you back into Judaism or back into legalism, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households. And remember at the time, households were where churches met. They didn't have houses and church buildings. They had houses where church met. So there are people who will come in and subvert entire churches whose mouths must be stopped. There are some people you don't need to, you know, just help them feel better about themselves. There's some people you need to tell them, you do not say that in this building. There are some doctrines that you need to say, you're not going to say that again. And so Paul's giving this instruction to Titus because Titus is the kind of guy who's willing to tell somebody, hey, buddy, that doesn't come out of your mouth again in this building. And they are teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So he's quoting a, a, f- a famous, I think, poet from the island of Crete. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul goes, you know, that's about the scope of it, Titus. That's, that's your ministry field right there. These, you are, you're working with people who are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And I want you to raise up elders. I want you to raise up men who are gonna, are going to hold on to the word. This is not an easy ministry that Titus has been given. But Titus is a faithful guy who Paul can say, you know what, just get in there and, and be faithful to the word of God. Be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and when you need to, rebuke, exhort, convict. You hold fast to the truth because it's true. Therefore, verse 13, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now notice, in verse 16, he says, They profess to know God, but by their works they deny him. The people who profess to know God are the legalists. People who want to say, you know, if you can do a couple more things, you're, you're on your way. You're, you're doing well. But if you could just be a little better, God would love you just a little more. If you could, you know, just give me, you know, 11% instead of 10%. And me, of course, because you're my people. This is my church, right? Uh, you know, if these people who are dishonest and they're, they're coveting after money, they say, well, you know, if you do this, you're in a better position. Paul says they profess to know God. They always claim some sort of secret knowledge. Like, well, no, see, I'm really spiritual, and if you want to attain to my level, you're going to have to do what I tell you. Now, that's in extreme form. We call that being a cult. But in a mild form, we just call that being religious, being a good Christian. Right? We, have a lot of, we have a lot of very polite phrases for it when it's not a matter of killing people. It's just a matter of slowly draining their souls. Right? We have a lot of very nice expressions for it. But Paul says the legalist, profess to know God but in their works they deny him now what's interesting is throughout this book as we get in chapters two and three Paul is going to put a big emphasis on works Paul is all about being saved by grace but Paul is also all about works ought to follow grace and Paul says these guys deny the reality that they know God by their works why because if you put works before grace all you're proving is that you have no idea what grace is the same way if you try and gain peace before grace, you do not understand the concept of grace. If you say you're going to receive the grace of God by what you do, all you're demonstrating is that you have no idea what the grace of God is that we're talking about. So there are legalists who will profess to know God and they're defiled and unbelieving, so nothing's pure. Nothing is good enough for them. No, no, it's not good enough. This doctrine is not good enough. We can't have this. This music is not good enough. This style is not good enough. Whatever it is, this is not just not, no, it's not this isn't holy enough for God. Right? There's all kinds of great ways to spin it, but oh no, I'm sorry, that isn't good enough for God. Would you really want to give that to God? And they're denying the reality of God by their works. Their works disqualify them. The thing that they think is making them approved in the sight of God is the very thing that is disqualifying them from service to the Lord. Chapter 2. We're going to read all the way down through verse 8, and then we'll go back and, and break it down piece at a time. But as for you... In contrast to the false teachers, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed likewise exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine showing integrity reverence incorruptibility sound speech that cannot be condemned that one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you so paul here outlines to titus here's the things you should teach the church and he works through every group of people within the church old men old women young men young women And so we're going to kind of just work our way through them but he starts off with the older men and the older women. And right there you gotta stop because so often in the church what we, we have kind of a, a problem where nobody wants to admit that they're old, right? I'm not old, I'm well-seasoned, I'm mature. I'm so, whatever, you know, you give it a name, but deep down we all know the reality which is that you're old. But here's the problem, and this is why I really want to stop here, and this is, I think the Lord put this on my heart, and so I think this is important, and that is that when we have this idea that it's somehow bad to admit that you're old, that's a worldly idea, because the world says in order to have any value in society, you need to be young and attractive and beautiful and hip and with it, and if you're not that, you're worthless, And so the world is happy to just kind of tuck old people off to the side, right? Move into a retirement community, get out with all your 55 and over friends, and then move into a nursing home and get with all your, you know, your senior citizen friends, and we'll just kind of get you out of sight, out of mind, because you're a drain on society anyways. That's the world's perspective on old people. The world has no use for old people. And so if we're not careful in the church, if we let that idea creep in, then all of a sudden, you know, I mean, young people have the energy, they got the drive. They're the ones who are going to go out there and really, and they're the next generation anyway. So they're the ones who are going to be effective in, in reaching the lost. So, you know, I mean, we have a, you know, a senior's ministry. But really, you know, I mean, even in churches, people in leadership complain about who? They're old people. Because they old people are always complaining about them, right? They don't like the music. They don't like the clothes. They don't like any, something about the church. And so, you know what? They're going to complain about me. I'm just going to complain about them. But that's not how the Lord sees it. That's not how the Scripture sees it. The Scripture sees being old as a status that should be exalted, as an honor that should be held on to. Being old is something you should be proud of, okay? Proverbs says, the glory of old men is their gray hair. The glory of young men is their strength. It's okay to glory in something different and say, you know what? This is what I've been given. This is my season. This is my opportunity. And especially if you go back in your mind or in your Bible, that's an option too, But I forgot to look up the exact verse, so it might take me a second here. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon the church. The church is born on the day of Pentecost. And Peter stands up, and he's given a sermon. And he says, what's happening here is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel spoke. And we'll be there in a couple months on Sunday mornings. But Joel said, it will come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Joel says the mark of the Holy Spirit on a young person's life is that they'll have vision, and on an old person's life is that they'll have dreams. And that's a reversal of the natural order. Because young people are the dreamers. Okay? Young people have dreams. And and when you're young, there's varying levels of, you know, exactly how sinful are your dreams and how selfish are your dreams. But Young people are sort of known for being dreamers. they got their head in the clouds, they're, you know, a little impractical, a little hard to kind of tie down, but they're the dreamers. And the mark of the Holy Spirit on the life of a young person is they're going to have vision. The young person whose life has been surrendered to the Holy Spirit is no longer about my dreams. They're about, you know what, the Lord has given me a call and I want to walk in it faithfully. And so I need to put myself in a position where I'm growing, where I'm surrendered to the Lord, where I'm dealing with sin in my life, where I'm moving forward in growth because God is calling me to something long-term. The mark of the Holy Spirit on a young person's life is vision. But the mark of the Holy Spirit on an old person is dreams. And when you think about old people in general, that's not what they're known for, right? Old people, to their credit, a lot of times they kind of have vision, right? At that point, you know, if your, if your money's pile it up enough, you're investing in you know, slow but steady stocks, you want to grow you know, 2 or 3% a year, just something nice and steady no need to take big risks maybe save up a lot, you're, you're getting your will set in place, you want to hopefully bless your kids and leave them an inheritance and say okay, you know what, I want to pass this on to the next generation, but really I'm just kind of coasting out, I want to make sure I don't run out of money before I die, but other than that, we'll just kind of, kind of hold steady but Joel said the mark of the Holy Spirit on an old person is that they're gonna have dreams. Is it an old person and not selfish dreams, spirit-given dreams? The mark of the Holy Spirit on an old person is that they say, you know what, I've got this, this kind of crazy idea. And I'm thinking, and, and I'm and, and you might think it's crazy too, but I've been praying and I've been reading the word, and I think maybe the Lord is calling me to do this. And i you know, I know it sounds crazy because I'm way too old to be doing this. But the Lord says that's the mark of the Holy Spirit on an old person's life. I remember years ago being at a pastor's conference and a guy was speaking, and I won't tell you how old I thought he was at the time, but I would say by any metric we would use he was old, okay? And the guy said, my wife and I started praying years ago Lord we want our last years to be more fruitful than our first ones. This is a guy who had been pastoring for decades. He said, and the Lord started giving us a burden for England. So we handed off the church to some. The, yeah, been pastoring a church here in the states. He said, "We handed off the church to somebody else who the Lord raised up. Sold pretty much everything we owned. Landed in England with four suitcases. We started a church in London. Now that's by any earthly standard, that's stupid, right? Like, like old people shouldn't be doing those kinds of things. But the world doesn't have any use for old people, anyways. So old people, God says, hey, there's a vision for you in the church." And that's for you to be in a position of influence, for you to be a demonstration of faith and boldness, to be the people who are willing to say, hey, you know what? I am going for it. And the other thing is you got to remember if you're an older person or an old person, I'd encourage you to just drop the er and just like embrace it as like I'm an old person, right? I can't wait to be an old person. I'm going to get that huge nose and the wrinkly fingers and I'm going to like never shave my eyebrows. I'm just like popping out. It's true, but we'll get to, Paul's going to tell me to be sober-minded in a minute here, so I'll, we'll, we'll, we can edit that out later. But, but you got to remember something, too. The young Christians in the church need the old people because we're looking down. If God has given us vision, okay, and we're looking at, I've got decades ahead of me of serving with the Lord. I want to know that this isn't a waste, Right? I, I don't want to get down to my, you know, later years and realize, shoot, Christianity was just a game to keep me, in, you know, to, to just kind of harness my energy. I don't want that. I want an old person to say, you know what, I've been doing it for decades and Christ has never failed me. And I have watched the power of God work in my life. I have watched the power of God change hearts and lives. I have watched a cause and effect universe live out over and over and over again. And so you go for it. Because God will prove himself faithful. Young Christians need old Christians. And so don't ever sell yourself short as an old person. Right? And never forget too, as gracious as I can say this, you're an endangered species. So you're needed because the ranks keep thinning for one of two reasons, right? For one, older people die more frequently than young people. And so faithful people who have been serving the Lord, they keep dying. And so it's time for new old people to step in their place as the faithful ones who say, you know what, I've been doing it and it's still valid. But also a huge number of people just never make it to the status of being an old Christian because they gave up and quit along the way. There's a huge number of people who, who, you know, maybe the Lord will restore them. But, you know, when Paul writes in 2 Timothy and says, Demas has forsaken me, he left for Thessalonica, Demas didn't get to be an old guy who could pass on the truth that he learned to a younger generation. There's, there's a lot of Demases in the world. So if you're an old person, seize the opportunity. God is giving you a ministry and a calling that he is not giving me. That he is not giving a lot of people. And you can sit around and complain about your joints, and if they hurt, I am sure they do. And, and make no mistake, I'm, I want to be as gracious as I can, because someday I am on par to be much more complainy than you are. But, uh, but don't, don't see being old as time to coast, right? Being old, you know, you can see the tail end of your life as, like, just trying to kind of coast and slow down the train and get into the station, or you can see it as just, like, ramping off the top of the roller coaster, Right? Which one are you going to do? We're just, just going to like whoosh, straight into heaven, right? Rocket Ship Express, baby. You know, all the way. So Paul says, older men, be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. Old guys, just be patient. Be chill. Right? Old, if, if, if every old Christian man was marked by faith, love, and patience, it would be different than every old non-Christian man, right? I remember years ago, I was probably 12 years old. I was in Walmart. I'm going to the bathroom. and This old guy is next to me. He goes, "You want a piece of advice, kid?" I'm like, "Sure." "When you turn 70, hire somebody to shoot you." I was like, "Okay, yeah, thank you. Uh I will I will be sure to put that in the vault, you know? Uh like who goes around telling that to twelve-year-olds, anyways? Right, but like, but old men, sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and patient. Older women, be reverent in your behavior. Don't be slanderers. Do not. There's no need to go around spreading stories, be they true or false. Right. An older woman should see that she has an opportunity to use her words effectively. And Paul's going to go on that in just a second. Not given to much wine. Take it easy, ladies. Teachers. Of good things, an old lady has a power to influence another generation. And he, and he goes on here. He says they admonish the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, we get to a passage like this. It's my responsibility to teach it because we're going verse by verse through the Scripture. But just now, I'm about ready to tell the young ladies in the room. I got done you know, wailing on the old men and the older ladies. Young ladies are next, young men are coming. If you're a young lady and you sit here and you think, he has no idea what he's talking about, you are absolutely correct. That's the job of the older women to do it, but this is where we're at, so I'm going to do it. Paul encourages the older women to exhort the younger women to love their husbands, love their children, be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may be blasphemed. Now, sometimes... People take this passage and say, see, no woman can ever work outside the home. It's wrong for a woman to get a paycheck. If you're not, whatever, you're in sin. And you've got to say, well, no. That's not what Paul's saying here. Right? But he's making a... It's, it's not wrong for a woman to earn money. Proverbs talks about a virtuous woman is diligent, works with her hands, buys property, invests wisely. Okay? But Paul is making a point. And that is that it's also not wrong to desire some of these things. Because our world is obsessed with telling you, as young ladies, that if you're not chasing your dreams and if your dreams aren't big enough, you need to make them bigger. And if you're focused on just like simple faithfulness, that is just that's a waste of, of God given talent. Paul says, no, actually encourage the young ladies to be homemakers because you can actually make a building into a home. It's a gift you have that I'd say ninety nine point nine percent of every man I've, of all the men I've ever met in the world do not have, right? A woman can do something with furniture and change it. Like when a man puts a chair in the room, it has one function, and that's for me to sit in, right? A woman puts a chair in the room and starts considering like, like what, what's the, why tweak it? Because it, it changes the atmosphere. And a man's like, the atmosphere, what? Like, it's just a chair. We're just supposed to, to sit ourselves down it. No, but it's going cha- to make the room feel more inviting. And you can do things. You have a brain and an, a, a capacity to see the ability to turn the home into a welcoming and comforting place that men do not have. And we can walk in and say, wow, I don't know what it is, but she did it, right? We can appreciate it, but we can't do it. And he says, so don't despise that. It's a gift God gave you to make a home a welcoming place for ministry to happen. For your husband and your children or the people you'll invite in to experience the comfort of a family that is secure in Christ. That's a beautiful ministry. He says to be lovers of your husband and your children. And there's a couple things there that are really important. First of all, in the Greek, the word love that he uses there is not the word agape. It's not the word for the, you know, the, the eternal self-sacrificing love of God. It's the word for Friend. Paul's exhortation to the old woman to exhort the young woman is that they like their husbands and like their kids. Because frankly, most kids never... I mean, there are exceptions, it is an evil world, but the vast majority of kids don't grow up wondering if their mom would actually die for them. Like if she needed to jump in front of a car to save them, we're all pretty sure that would happen. But have you ever seen a kid in Walmart who couldn't have told you for sure whether or not his mom liked him? Right? There's a difference. The love of a mother for her child is just kind of hardwired into you. God gave you that, and it's an incredible thing. But the ability to like your kids is sometimes more of a a struggle because some kids are just not that likable. And Paul says, hey, you know what? You like those kids. And actually, you've got this thing called a husband. Try liking him too, right? Just, Just see what happens. He's encouraging them. But also, I think there's another element here when he encourages them to be discreet and chaste and good, and that is that a woman's desire is to be loved and to know that she's loved. A man's desire is to be respected. Right? When boys are growing up, their deep driving question of their heart is, do I have what it takes? Have I got what it takes to pull this off? The deep desire of a girl or a young woman is, do you see me? Am, am, I, am I worth loving? And in our world today, this is and this is a this is just a horrible lie that our world sells. But in our world today, the standard approach for how you gain love is to spread it as thinly as possible to the widest possible audience. Right? If if if, you know if a provocative picture that you post gets you an extra three hundred followers, then that means you're you're on your way. You're finding gratification. No, it doesn't. You spread love thin and love cannot go deep. And, and I'm, I'm a man pretty, pretty solidly, and so I have no idea exactly how the female mind works. But I've never really met a woman who I felt like wanted to be loved in a shallow context. Women want to be known in a deep context. And so there's an exhortation here, I think, love closely and love deeply. Right? Don't, don't sell your love to the cheapest bidder. Right? Take it and apply it deep and close within the family, within the home, and let there be a depth to it that will bring you a much greater satisfaction. Verse 6. Paul goes on, he says, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. And that's the end of the list. Young men, Paul evidently just felt like I can't overdo it for them. I'm just going to try and like break it down. Bullet points will be too complex for the young men, so we're going to have a bullet point. All right, young men, be sober. That's it. Young men, Paul says, take it seriously. Live like this matters. Life is not a game, okay? And as you're growing and walking with the Lord, this is not a chance for you to have fun. There's, there's a lot of joy in walking with the Lord. Don't, make, don't misunderstand me. But life is not about you having fun. Okay? You were born into a war. And and God has given you, as young men, certain desires and certain drives and even certain physical abilities. Because you were built for war. God did not come, Jesus did not come and and live and die a perfect life so you could be nice and safe and playing video games. He came and lived and died so you could be dangerous. You could be dangerous. You want to go to war, you want to kill something, put your flesh to death. Go to war. You've got an enemy who hates you, who wants your soul. He is coming after you. Take it seriously. He's not in the mood to play games, so don't play games back. Young men, live like you're in a war because you are. And if you have the physical capacity to grow and protect in a physical context the people around you, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great gift from God. God gave your ability, your body, and the ability to to build muscle better than a woman's body your bones are gonna be thicker and stronger than a woman's bones okay your body can use oxygen more efficiently than a woman's body you can form a fist and it's a dangerous thing because you can use it for yourself but you can also use it to protect people because it's a dangerous world right it's a a dangerous world and so if you're a young man it's important to understand take it seriously And and there's an incredible call that God wants to have for your life. God is always looking for more men. There's a lot of women in the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of men who act like women, who need to suck it up and learn to be men. But if you're a young man, Paul says, understand that you were created for a purpose. God did not give you the same role in the church that he gave young women. He wants you to have vision, to say, I am in this for the long haul. I am in it until the end. I am going to push, push after this goal. I'm going to war for the rest of my life. And I'm going to live like it matters. Verse nine, he goes on. He says, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Bond servants are slaves. Okay, and, and we've talked about before in the Roman world, the majority of the population was slaves. And some of them were more like slaves by conquest, what we think of in the traditional context. But a large majority of them, or a large percentage of them, were uh, slaves for economic reasons. Really very much like employment today. And so anytime you're looking in Scripture and you read a verse that applies to bond slaves, you can apply it to your employment status. So if you're employed, be obedient to the people who are over you. Be well-pleasing to them. Don't answer back. Don't pilfer. Don't rob from your company, either in stealing money or in stealing time. Right? You give them a good day's work for a good day's wage. Don't give them a lame day's work. That's theft. And it may not land you in jail, but God sees it as theft. Don't pilfer from your work, showing good fidelity, good faithfulness, that you can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. You can decorate the gospel. Working diligently is like putting ornaments on the Christmas tree of the gospel. It makes it more beautiful. It makes it more appealing. It makes people in another context, in a work context, people who are not in church, are not in the word of God, say, help me out here. You used to be a bum. You used to show up late and be lazy. And now you're like, you're working diligently. You're not lying. You're, you're, you're actually living like it, like your job has some value or like you want to take it seriously. What happened? Your employment, the way you handle your employment, should be a means of sharing the gospel. Verse 11, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation. So he's summing up the roles of old men, old women, young men, young women, servants and employees. That grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Paul says the grace of God has appeared, and the grace of God is teaching us something. Grace is not an excuse to do whatever you want. Grace is an active truth that God loves you enough to save you. And if you actually comprehend that truth, it drives you. Because it starts teaching you something. And it teaches us that we should deny ungodliness. We should deny worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly, looking for the return of Christ. That is what grace is supposed to do. You do not receive grace because you do these things. But because you have received grace, you should do these things. Okay? And he says, speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. So, Titus, you tell them. You call it like it is. You exhort them, encourage them where they need to, and you rebuke them. You put them down where you need to. With all authority. You are not doing this. There is no reason... If, if you're declaring the word of God to ever walk it back, right? Sometimes a pastor can take a verse and he can give you so much context and Greek grammar and, 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 well, you know, application for today that he can just, he can neuter a verse. He can take all the passion and all the truth out of it. And Paul says, don't you do that. You do this with all authority. When Jesus was on earth, says the people marveled at him because he taught with authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus did not teach like the religious leaders, because his ministry was marked by authority. When Jesus said something was true, you didn't have to wonder if he actually thought it was true or not. You didn't have to wonder if you were going to later find out that he might have said it was true, but he didn't live like it was true. Jesus carried out his ministry with a level of authority that made people say, that's true. And so chapter three, Paul goes on, he says, remind them, remind the church, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for good work, to, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable and gentle, showing all humility to all men. So your reminds then to be subject to rulers. Now, again, this thing that Christians have always wrestled with. The scriptures are clear that we should be in submission to authority. They're also clear that our highest authority is God. Right? So, so when possible, we obey the laws of our government. But if the government commands us to do something that God forbids, or if the government forbids us to do something that God commands, we disobey. We exercise civil disobedience. The government says you cannot declare that there are only two genders. Guess what? We're going to declare that there are only two genders. The government says you cannot assemble together as a church. You know what? Hebrews says do not forsake the assembling of the brethren. We're going to assemble as a church. But, and this is really important, We're called to walk in submission whenever possible. But if you have to step out of that, if you have to exercise civil disobedience because you're submitted to a higher law, you do it showing all humility to all men. If you're going to exercise civil disobedience because there's a conviction in your heart that you cannot participate or fail to participate in a certain activity and still be in keeping with the word of God, that is not a time to start insulting people, right? If you, I mean, and, you know, in our world right now, okay, I can say this pretty safely because I know most people in the room, but we have a president who very consistently makes very ungodly policies. President Biden supports policies that are unbiblical, that are evil, because they go against the truth of God's word. And that's a fact, and, I, and I'll stand here and tell you that. But if I'm talking about him, I'm going to call him President Biden. I'm going to show as much respect as possible. I'm also not going to stand and say, well, I I can't tell the truth because that would be not in subjection to the authorities because Paul said you respect all authority. No, no, no. It's evil to say that, that you can be whatever you want. It's evil to lie to young people and tell them they should change their gender and that will make them satisfied when it will not. But it's also wrong for us as Christians to elevate ourselves and say, oh my gosh, those people are all idiots because they don't know that there's only two genders. No, 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 because, because Paul goes on. Verse 3, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. No one is ever any worse than you are because we are all sinners we are all equally in need of the grace of God and so if you have received the grace of God you are not given the ability or the right to despise someone else for not having received it yet you're never allowed in scripture to put yourself in a status of well I received it no no I was given it It was given to me. I did nothing to receive it. And so I am never in a position to say, oh, my gosh, that person's an idiot. I'm in a position to say, I am that person. I am every bit. As sinful and depraved and perverted and prideful and evil and wicked as that person. But the grace of God has made me into something new. I am a new creation by nothing that I have done and everything that Christ has done. And that changes our approach. That still allows us to stand up and declare truth. But it also forces us to do it in a spirit of humility. Because we are never calling out evil because we're better. We're calling it out because God is good. And we don't want to see other people waste their lives. So he says, we were also once to see, verse 4, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration, that's rebirth, and the renewing, it's like the recleansing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But when the kindness and the love of God appeared, he saved us. Not by any works of righteousness that we've done. And if that wasn't enough, he gave us, he didn't just save us, he gave us new life. And if that was enough, he continues to cleanse us because he poured out his Holy Spirit on us, how much abundantly, through Jesus Christ, that having been justified by his grace. How much of this are we doing? None of it. This is all by the grace of God. This is the kindness and the love of God our Savior appearing. And Paul says, this is a faithful saying, and I want you to affirm this constantly. The role of the church is not to be a a doctrine police. It's not to make sure everybody's exactly right on all their points of where do you stand with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and where do you stand with the gifts of the Holy Spirit versus the authority of the Word of God, and where do you stand with our miracles for today, and where do you stand with, should you be sprinkled or immersed in baptism, and does infant baptism count, and where do you stand with all of these things? The purpose of the church of God is to declare that there's an earth that is broken and is full of sinners and that Jesus Christ is perfect and that he came to save us. That is the role of the church. And if you understand that as the role, then everybody has a job. Every old man, every old woman. Every young man and every young woman has a job because we're all a part of that kingdom. We're all heirs of that family. And we had nothing to do with it. Paul says, you make sure that you are talking about this all the time. The role of the church is not to fix people. It's not to be a fun place to hang out. It's not to be a good social club. The role of the church is to declare that Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is God and savior. He is perfect and he is here. He has come to save us. And we can have new life, we can have power, we can have victory over our sin because of what he has done. We talk about that, and we don't stop. And we talk about it again. And it should become a little bit repetitive, but it should never lose its freshness. Because we sin pretty pretty regularly. You know, some of us are like high-caliber sinners, right? So I'm always due for a fresh reminder Of the fact that God saved me, and that He's still working, right? I've never yet gone a week, from Sunday to Sunday, where I didn't need to be re reminded of it, because I've always, I've always successfully sinned in between Sunday and Sunday, and I need to come to church and be reminded again. Hey, what you did this week can be forgiven, because I'm still working, right? So it never gets old. It never gets. We never stop talking about it, but it never gets old. He goes on, verse 9. After telling Titus to affirm this constantly, he says, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. There are stupid things you can talk about in a church, Paul says, and they are a waste of your time. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. You notice that Titus and Timothy... Seem to have different personalities in their ministry. Paul says, listen, somebody comes into the church, and he wants to divide the church with a, with a stupid doctrine, a foolish dispute. You got somebody who wants to come in your church and start weaseling his way in between friends and saying, you know, actually, do you realize there's actually, if you understand you know, every seventh letter of the Greek New Testament written backwards, you can understand the day that Jesus Christ is coming back. Tell them, bro, shut up, right? Now somebody comes in and they have a divisive doctrine, oh, that's just kind of a strange doctrine. But you can have divisive doctrines too, right? Well, you know, if you don't really believe in the sovereignty of God, that means you're denying God's holiness. That's a dangerous road to walk on. You can get all these quiet little things, right? Are you putting God in a box? You know, if you're not, if you're not, if you're not running around like a wild animal barking, you're not actually filled with the Spirit. If you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not actually saved. There are doctrines that come into the church, that are divisive and they are useless and paul says if somebody comes into your church and they want to spread those doctrines it's a three strikes and you're out policy okay first definition hey bro you know what we don't talk about those kinds of things here our focus is to constantly be affirming jesus christ and so we're gonna be in the word we're gonna be filled with the spirit we're gonna be talking about what does god want to do but we don't even talk about that and they say okay sorry then we're cool and they bring it up again you say hey you know what we already talked about this before, right? That's not the point of this church. That's not why we're here. And They say, "Oh, okay, I'm sorry, no problem, I'll forgive you." If they bring it up again, you say, "Bro, get out of this church and don't come back." You are, you are trying to divide the people of God. And, and as a steward of God, when elders are appointed, there's a job to manage the things that God has entrusted to us. And to say, "You know what? I'm sorry, you are not welcome." to come into a church and pit the people of God against each other. So you need to leave. And that person repents and wants to come back and apologize. You know what? There's an there's awful lot of grace for that, man. But uh, sometimes in a church you tell people, no, don't do that. And Paul tells Titus, you can tell them, hey, bro, get out of this church and don't come back. You come back and I'm calling the Cretan cops or whatever they are, right? You're not welcome here. Such a person is warped and sinning. A person who wants to divide the church is a warped person. That's a really strong phrase, but I kind of like the sound of it. Verse 12, when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos to the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. So I'm sending one of these two guys to you. I'm not sure which one. Whenever they get there and they take over for you, come on over to Nicopolis. We'll do some ministry there this winter. Verse 14, and let our people learn also to maintain good works to meet urgent needs. They may not be unfruitful. Again, you know, in chapter one, Paul said legalists, by their works, deny that they know God. But a very important part of the church is to be walking in good works as a response to what God has done. G.K. Chesterton uh, wrote a book called Orthodoxy. Uh, early 1900s. It's it's kind of a hard book to read because I think the man had like hardcore ADD before it was a thing. And so the book pinballs all over the place, okay? But he makes a couple points that are really profound. He says, when a man buys a woman a necklace, it's not because she has an ugly neck, right? It's because he loves her and he wants to therefore decorate her, right? And so he says, he says there's this really important line you have to understand, and that is that something, we, we have this idea in our world that something has to be beautiful in order to be loved. He says that's not how it works. He says something becomes beautiful because it's loved, right? A woman becomes truly beautiful when she is truly loved, right? He says, you know, Rome was not loved because it was beautiful. It became a beautiful city because men loved it. And the idea carries over into our lives God wants, he says, you adorn the gospel with good works. You don't adorn it to receive the love. But because God loves us, he wants to make us beautiful as his bride. Because God loves us, he says, hey, let's, let's, let's decorate this thing, right? And so let's put good works onto it because it's a beautiful thing. Because we've been made holy by the blood of Christ, God says, hey, walk in good works. So there's not this weird disconnect between the holiness that you've been given and the holiness that you're walking in, right? So maintain good works. Meet urgent needs. If there's problems, you can meet them. Go for it. That They may not be unfruitful. Verse 15, all who are with me greet you. So maybe he ran out of space, you know. Everybody who's here says hi. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Paul wraps up. Once again, like so many of his letters. What do we need to remember? As Paul, you know, the final zinger from Paul is may the grace of God be with you. May the riches that we have received when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, those riches that we have received by nothing that we have done and by everything that he's done, may those be with you in a full measure. And may that drive everything about your ministry and your calling. Whatever season of life you're in, whatever position you're in, May the grace of God drive us because grace is an active truth. It forces us to make a decision about it's either true or false. Are we walking in it or walking away from it? So may the grace of God be with each and every one of us. God, we thank you for the power of your word to speak into our hearts and our lives. We pray that we would respond to it in obedience, that we would walk in surrender, God, I pray for every person in this room that we would all stand in the ministries in which you have called us to. Be we older men, older women, younger men, younger women. I pray that we would see the field that you've given us to work, that we would be faithful stewards. I pray that you would equip us to walk in victory. Fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit. Guide us and lead us by your word. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our resurrected King, that we pray. Amen.